Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. Um, and today's episode is a little bit different in that I have a guest. Uh, please welcome the eventually to be Dr. Ilya. Um, Ilya, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us what you do, what you did. Sure thing. What I did. This sounds like I'm introducing myself on like a true crime podcast. But yeah, so I'm a third year PhD student nowadays uh, working in computational photography. So I do machine learning mixed with trying to make cameras do imaging better. But back in the old days when I was still an undergrad, I worked in an MRI lab and I did a lot of sort of molecular imaging through MRI. So trying to get really weird quantitative results out of uh, magnetic resonance. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So today's episode, I want to start with a story. So in 2009, Dr. Craig Bennett and his colleagues were endeavoring to study humans and their neural responses to social stimuli. And to do so, they used a technique called fMRI, or Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. And I'm going to try to give kind of a broad overview. Ilya, please correct me (laughs) if I'm fucking anything up. But from my understanding, it measures small changes in blood oxygenation that occurs with brain activity. Um, while someone is conducting a task like looking at faces or reading some sort of passage. And if a certain brain region is active, then blood flow to that region will increase, which is detectable, and scientists are able to link this brain region's activity with whatever task that subject is conducting. Um, And fMRI is commonly used to examine the brain's functional anatomy, conduct brain mapping, evaluate the effects of different diseases like stroke, or even to guide treatment. Um, And Long story short, it's, it's widely used in a variety of fields, but given that you have some experience with MRI and the field in general, I was wondering, would you kind of give us a broad overview of how it works? Yeah, sure thing. So MRI is one of those fields where uh, everything is built on analogies, and then if you look into those analogies, those analogies are built on other analogies. So in that family of things, I'm going to build this entire explanation on analogies. Um, you as a human being are made up of uh, trillions of tiny little magnets. So if you think of the protons of any of your, um, you know, inside any of the molecules that make up you, they're actually, they have little magnetic fields. And they have this cool thing called spin, which is a quantum property that if you interrogate any physics grad student, they'll cry and they'll say, I don't know what spin is. No one knows what spin is. But it's some uh, some fancy scientific property. Basically, um we found out that if you put a human being or any kind of uh, uh, biological or non-biological substance into a very, very strong magnetic field, so in the case of a lot of uh, MRI machines that you can find you know, in your local hospital or your research institute, it's going to be something like three Teslas, which is very, very big. If you put someone into this very strong magnetic field, kind of like if you take two strong fridge magnets and you try to like push them together, you'll find that if they're facing the wrong way, one of them will like flip to align and to stick together. I'm, I'm realizing sort of the, uh, the limiting factors of a podcast format of I'm uh, making a lot of hand gestures, but <laughs> you know what? Me too. That's exactly. So it, it, in the same sort of way that if you push fridge magnets together, one of them will try to flip so they're aligned and they can stick together. If you put um, something containing all these, uh, you know, bunches of protons into a strong magnetic field, 
the protons are going to basically flip to either face in the direction of the magnetic field or against the direction of the magnetic field. And due to some very fancy quantum mechanics, uh, namely this Boltzmann distribution Oof, of energies, um, it turns out that, yeah, the, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those like mathy subjects where uh, you'll read into it and you're like, this is a freak like thing of nature that allows us to, you know, do fat intrusion imaging. But due to this um, basically fancy quantum mechanics, um, you get more protons that are going to align with the magnetic field versus ones that align against it. So you get more upspins than you get downspins. And so when you squish all these magnetic fields together, so you squish the individual, you know, contributions of all the all these uh, trillions of protons together, there's actually some kind of net signal. And by measuring that, that's what you measure in in the MRI. And from that, you can magically reconstruct <laughs> images. Magic. Um, the magic here being then you go into software and electrical engineering and signal processing and uh, frequency space stuff. But long of the short is that you put someone in a giant magnet and it uh, squishes all the signals of your atoms together and that gives you some meaningful uh, data. Got it. <laughs> and before you stick humans into this giant magnet, it's it's pretty normal to test whether or not your giant magnet works, right? And normally most people put in uh, like a balloon filled with mineral oil. Is that what you guys did? Yeah, so it varies Um before you even really like run an MRI and put anything into it, there's a long process of what's called shimming, where people will uh, kind of put this uh, magnetic probe to make sure the field is what it says it is, or like what it's supposed to be in different parts of the magnet. And then after that, when you're testing, you know, um, your uh, uh, what are called sequences, sort of the um, bits of code that you're putting in to actually uh, get an image out of your MRI, when you're testing these sequences, You'll often use, you know, a ball filled with water, a pumpkin, something that is recognizable and you can tell that, hey, this looks like it's supposed to or this doesn't look like it's supposed to. Yeah. So Dr. Craig Bennett and co. Uh, were, in fact, overachievers. And not only did they stick a pumpkin in there, but they also stuck a Cornish game hen because they wanted to see whether or not they could see, like, defined and distinct types of tissue, fat, bone, muscle, etc., but that wasn't good enough. Not yet. So our main character in this story went to his local grocery store and said, I need a full-length Atlantic salmon for science, please. And having procured this fish, Bennett stuck it into the scanner and ran all of the usual anatomical scans. And before I dive in too deep into what he found, I want to say that like this entire comical adventure was published, 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 in the Journal of Serendipitous and Unexpected Results as, uh, quote, neural correlates of interspecies perspective taking in the postmortem Atlantic salmon, an argument for proper multiple comparisons correction. And I have, the show, I have the paper linked in the show notes, but I also want to bring it up because I want a quote from it because this paper is, a, is gold, honestly. It's like, you know, this is like a poor overworked scientist who has spent his entire life like writing academic papers was like, I'm going to be funny. I'm finally going to be funny and publish. And it's beautiful because you have to walk this really thin line of, I need to write sentences that uh, if you read them will make will make people laugh, but that aren't so far outside of the, you know, uh, into the absurd that you can't actually you know, put this into a PDF. Um, but yeah, I want to quote um, 
One mature Atlantic salmon, weighing 3.8 pounds and measuring 18 inches long, participated in the fMRI study. It was not known whether the salmon was male or female, but given the postmortem state of the subject, this was not thought to be a critical variable. Image acquisition was completed on a 1.5 Tesla GE Cigna MR scanner, a quadrature birdcage head coil used for RF transmission and reception. No idea what that means. But foam padding was placed within the head coil to limit salmon movement during the scan, but proved to be largely unnecessary as subject motion was extraordinarily low. The brain was then examined while the salmon observed the experimental stimuli. And the task that was given to the salmon involved completing in like an open-ended mentalizing task. Um, so the salmon was shown a series of photographs depicting human beings in social situations with specific emotional valence. So either socially inclusive or socially exclusive images. So it's kind of like someone is sitting alone at the lunch table while all of their friends are playing tennis or something. I don't know. Or, uh, I don't know. They're at a party or something like that. And, uh, a T-contrast test was used to test for regions with significant bold signal change during the presentation of photos compared to other times. And several active voxels were observed in a cluster location within the brain's cavity. And what that means is that using this method, this salmon, this very, very dead salmon, upon being presented photographs of human beings in social scenarios, was thinking. Which... Doesn't 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 seem plausible. Doesn't seem correct, unless you know we have somehow brought pe- things back from the dead. I don't think science is there yet, but how the fuck is that possible? What are they like? Is something going wrong? Or yeah, so I um in the spirit of quoting this paper, and there are so many amazing quotes from it. Uh, to quote the discussion section, they begin by asking the question. Could we conclude from this data that the salmon is engaging in the perspective-taking task? <laughs> Certainly not. By controlling for the cognitive ability of the subject, we have thoroughly eliminated that possibility. I.e., the fish is dead, probably not thinking about much. <laughs> so, I think this, uh, again, I, I think this work has a very good discussion section in that that is half the paper. And the discussion section goes into this problem that I think exists far outside of the realm of just fMRI. It's it's a genuine, like, generic math slash imaging slash any other field you want to apply it to problem, which is the question of um, what I'll call mappings. So in, in this kind of functional MRI analysis that they're doing in this uh, Dead Salmon paper, they're probing for signal in what are called voxels. So uh, they're essentially like pixels in an image, but you extrapolate that to one more dimension. So little cubes of space. And what they're saying is that if you're imaging thousands of these cubes in space over time, which is another now uh, fourth dimension, you will find that just due to the noise distribution in the data, just due to the fact that like your MRI isn't producing perfect, ideal measurements of only, you know, uh, spin energies in your fish, it's also introducing some just regular signal acquisition noise that over thousands of samples over uh, multiple time slots, you're going to eventually run into voxels that just are on for no reason. And this is a fact of life. It's if you do any kind of, you know, census survey 
um, for like you do a census survey over the population of the United States asking for people's favorite colors, you're going to get one or two responses that are like hippopotamus. <laughs> like you're if you sample a lot of things and there's some innate noise distribution and you're not taking a lot of steps to get rid of that noise, you're inevitably going to run into places where that noise turns into contrast and turns into real signal. And so to uh, dive a little bit deeper into MRI itself, um, MRI is, you know, a very key diagnostic tool to a lot of diseases. One of the places where I have personally seen, you know, MRI scans used a lot is uh, for uh, sort of fat versus water imaging. Fat versus For example, water. there's a really, yeah, fat versus water. Got it. So um, basically due to the, the physics of how an MRI works, you're uh, measuring the jiggliness of protons, <laughs> but the things that those protons are attached to, like the thing that they are a part of, will determine how jiggly those protons are. I see. And it turns out that if you, if you take water, so it's two hydrogen protons and then oxygen, and if you take these like really long chains of fat, so it's a bunch of carbons, a bunch of hydrogens all slapped together in this long chain, they wiggle real different. And so MRI has a... Has a yeah, exactly. MRI has a has a really uh, good time being able to separate sort of uh, if you take a slice of your body, being able to separate like what here is uh, fat, how much fat is there going on in this region of the scan, and then what's water and subtract the two, and basically you, you can cut those regions apart. And what uh, one thing that's used for very effectively is um, in things like fatty liver disease, where you have basically additional fat just kind of collecting in your liver. One of the primary diagnostic tools is to stick someone in an MRI. You take the scan, you you separate your lipid uh, contrast from that scan, and you can say that okay, you have six point one three percent fat. Uh, that's you know uh, in your liver. That's probably not healthy. I'm going to pass this on to you know uh, your primary uh, care provider. Get get you some you know. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not a medical expert. Get, that's... You, get you in an emergency room, there, sir. Exactly. Yeah. Get you. Uh, get you the help, or like, uh, get you what you need. <laughs> the reason this sort of works, like the reason this uh, MRI is a really effective diagnostic tool in this kind of scenario, is that you're taking a lot of measurements. So if you think in in, in two dimensions, if you take you know the slice um, of area through your liver, you're taking a lot of measurements and you're squishing them down into basically one number. You're saying that I want to know the percentage of fat that's in your liver. I'm going to take all these thousands of thousands of measurements. I'm going to squish them down, and that's going to give me a percentage value. When you do that, if each individual measurement is a little noisy, you measure a little bit too much fat over here and a little bit uh, too little fat in this other part of the liver, when you average all those out, that number is still going to be very, very accurate, and it's perfect for diagnostics. But when you have, uh, going back to this word that I dropped earlier, this mapping where you have a lot of inputs, but you're also mapping them to a lot of outputs, you're always going to get these spurious connections where a little bit of noise on the input causes a little bit of noise on the output, causes, you know, is that part of your brain on or off? Got it. And I'm, I imagine there's like a lot of other sources of noise that are possible beyond just like spontaneous imaging issues, right? Like people mm -hmm. move around in MRIs and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's, uh, there's an entire concept. Again, this is a bigger than MRI problem. It's a problem that I'm facing with in my research literally right now. 
there's a uh, the concept of like structured noise and unstructured noise. Unstructured noise is something like your machine just you know it doesn't measure electricity that well. Sometimes it overestimates, sometimes it underestimates. You got you got this kind of like random noise coming through. But then there's also structured noise, which is like your patient you know shifted a little bit left during the scan, and because of that, like your signal or the output that you're measuring has this sort of structural change, like everything in your output change at the same time. This could also be there's effects from breathing because you can't really stop people from breathing into MRI. There's effects from... One would hope not. Exactly. Uh, There's effects from just heartbeat. So you're pumping a bunch of blood through your body. You're going to move tissue just from blood having to go uh, between it. And Mm -hmm. there's so, so, so many of these different things that you might have to model for. That makes sense. And people like do do model for it, right? Like there are there are programs and software out there that adjust for people's like movements, right? Or for yeah. sources of noise. Exactly. This is a um, a massive sort of field of research in uh, biomedical imaging. Is one, how do you sort of model for these effects and remove them from your from your data? And two, basically, even the question of what do you have to model for? There's very often you know, sort of an imaging modality, everyone has a standard procedure to taking some kind of data. And then a couple of years down the line, someone comes out with a paper saying that, like, hey, uh, we actually haven't modeled for this effect. And if you uh, take a look at it, like, this is actually, you know, a pretty significant effect in the results. Very cool. Um, You, I feel like, you sent me this paper a little while ago, and you said it's not really worth talking about MRI without really talking about this paper, which is the Reconstructing Visual Experiences from Brain Activity Evoked by Natural Movies. I was wondering if you could talk about that paper as well, because mm. I think it was, it, you said it was a pretty much a landmark paper, right? Yeah, I mean, it has, uh, as I'm looking right now on Google Scholar, it has about a thousand citations. That is a lot of it's citations. The, it's the kind of... Yeah, it's the kind of flavorful paper that ended up in, you know, regular news. It was uh, ended up in blog articles. There was a huge discussion on it um, on, I think, Less Than Wrong, like one of those philosophy blogs. And yeah, so it's um, definitely sparked a lot of conversation. And again, given the citations, it's definitely sparked a lot of people just like uh, looking into the field of fMRI and visualization in general. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about what this paper is. If you were to read, like if you were to Google the title of this paper and then take the top N blog posts, you would basically get the understanding that this is a paper where people read minds. It's again, this bold imaging. So it's looking at blood oxygenation in different parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. And if you just sort of read the top level analysis and you look at the pictures and the videos, It seems like um, the input is you just shove someone into an MRI and you show them a movie. And the output is that you are able to visualize roughly what the person is looking at. And it had some very. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's that's why it ends up on the news. Right. You have these like reading minds. Isn't that like the point of it? Yeah. Like it's it appeals to sort of like, you know, the cyberpunk part of my brain. of Like, ah. I, I really want something to just read my mind. That would be awesome if I could just, like, think about sending someone an email and I didn't have to actually go and sit down at my chair and open up my email client. Like, <laughs> that's the future I think we all want. Mind readings, or not all of us, mm, but... I don't know about that one. 
Yeah, maybe privacy sensitive mind reading is a as a future we might want, but yeah, it definitely grabs the attention. If you see the video uh, that accompanies this work, it's pretty amazing. There's like you know a video of elephants walking across, uh, uh, I think it was like a sand plain, and in the reconstruction you see these sort of dark elephant shaped blobs walking across a plain, and it it just looks amazing. Like it it does look like mind reading. And uh, this is all like a leading paragraph where then I turn and I say, but if you read the paper, that's not actually what it says. If you <laughs> if you look at the paper, there's no image generation model. Like they're, they're not actually generating images. They're not going from uh, blood oxygenation to pictures of elephants. They're actually doing kind of more of a probability guessing game where they, they show people... A, I think it was like 7,200 seconds of color natural movies where each movie was presented just once. So they basically show you a long set of video clips. And then they show you 540 seconds of test movies where they uh, repeat each clip 10 times. So they show you, you know, the elephants 10 times. They show you water droplets 10 times, these little mini video clips. And then... They basically use the signal during the test time. They use that that bold signal to rank the video clips they showed you by, like, most similar to least similar. And then they squish them together, and then that's what they turn into the output. Let me, let me say that again, just uh, a little bit slower. They show, you, they show you, you know, 10 repetitions of a video of elephants walking across the screen. Then they go back to the data that they recorded that's like, on the input, it's um, they showed you other videos of other stuff. Maybe there was like a, a cheetah in a grass hill or a capybara on Japanese sauna know, uh, poolside. Exactly, <laughs> in Japanese sauna. They take all these video clips they showed you on the input. They rank them based on this kind of uh, uh, similarity metric of like, based on what your brain was doing when you were looking at the elephant video, like which of these input video clips that we showed you earlier do we think are probably most similar to what you're mm-hmm. seeing now? Then they take the top 100 and they Got squish it. them so together. So it's not so much mind reading as it is a matching game? Yeah, it's it's less mind reading. It's more if we have read your mind or like if we have measured your brain for uh, uh, a bunch of this uh, footage that we showed you and then we try to uh, measure a new thing, is there a pattern? Like is you seeing a dark blob in the top uh, left corner of the image going to correlate with like other things you saw that had a dark blob in the top left corner of the image? And so that's, I think that's a pretty reasonable claim I, I, of, you know, we know for a fact that uh, you, your brain is trained to detect, you know, visual features, be it lines or large objects, hands, faces, etc. There's yeah. plenty of work into this space. And so it's, it's trying to play this matching game of like, is the thing we're showing you now it, similar to things that we showed you before? Except our similarity metric is going through this functional MRI. Interesting. Um, and while we have spent the majority of our time today kind of shit-talking MRI, um, I, I mm-hmm. kind of want to finish this episode by saying that, you know, as, as we brought up today, it's an incredible tool in a variety of fields, you know, like from, from diagnosing patients with 
fatty livers to, you know, huge applications in the field of neuroscience. Um, and one of the best things about it is like, it's not invasive. And unlike like my research where I can perturb mouse brains with like optogenetics and injecting viruses and doing things like that, you know, we can't, we can't do that in a living, breathing human being. So MRI is, is powerful in that it allows us to visualize living, breathing human beings. So I, I did want to like kind of finish up by saying, like bringing up some highlight reels. So first of all, uh, work in the field of MRI actually earned Paul Lutterber of Stony Brook University and Sir Peter's Mans- Mansfield of the University of Nottingham the 2003 Nobel Pri- uh, Prize in Physiology and Medicine for their discoveries. And um, I was going to bring up other notable studies, but I actually wanted to go back to one of the papers that I had cited in the previous episode about um, like anxiety and self-esteem. I, just, I, don't know, I really like the paper, but it's uh, neural and computational processes underlying dynamic changes in self-esteem where they showed patients... Uh, actually, no, they like... They made patients feel good about themselves by like getting feedback from other people and then looked at their like brain activity in an MRI. And then they made patients feel bad about themselves by being like, actually, somebody doesn't like you and then image their uh, brains. And I just, I, it's, it's such a cool application of just like, wow, we can actually visualize changes in self-esteem and things like that. One thing to highlight about MRI that makes it a really fun field to work in is that uh, there is really the time aspect, like what makes these sort of fMRI studies uh, really interesting, why people, I think, are really interested in uh, sort of MRI as an imaging modality, is that as much as you may want to, you probably shouldn't stick human beings into an x-ray for an hour. (laughs) Like, if you want to do a sort of time series analysis of like, how is stuff in your body changing over time? Uh, MRI is honestly one of the only ways you really get to do that, where you can uh, put someone into an MRI and show them videos of elephants walking across a field. You just can't do that with a lot of imaging modalities. And then the other thing is that, as uh, I mentioned before, sort of the research I did in undergrad, I was looking at this fancy thing called chemical exchange saturation transfer imaging, where it was looking at basically how do different molecules next to each other exchange energy if you apply radio frequency sort of energy to them? There's just uh, this a vastly growing number of things that you can image with an MRI that you just can't really get out of any other kind of modality. As in bold, you can look at blood oxygenation. You can look at, as I said before, sort of fat versus water. You can uh, try to look at flow. So you can look at flow dynamics of like in which direction are fluids in your body moving. There's a lot of these really, really cool things that you can get out of it. And I think the the closing remark that I would give is that if you are at all interested in the field of biomedical imaging, uh, walk up to your local biomedical imaging people and be like, yo, what you studying? Because... It's also, it's a very tall stack. You're going to, in any of these uh, labs, you have your sort of biomedical people that are looking at like, okay, we want to save lives and we want to make sure that like, you know, people aren't having heart attacks and we can find out why they're having heart attacks. And then you go up the stack and you have signal processing engineers, you have electrical engineers, computer scientists working on uh, the reconstruction algorithms. You have your local radiologist who says, I don't like the quality of this picture. I want something else. And there's just this large net of, or this large web of people that you can really interact with in this space. And 
I highly recommend that if you have your your local biomedical imaging people go go sit in on one of their meetings and see what they're Sweet. up to. Thank you, Ilya. It's good advice. Good advice for anybody that's starting out, you know, who maybe isn't just purely interested in, in neuroscience or biology, but kind of wants to be like maybe there's a little computational interest in there as well. But uh, that is a bite-sized look at MRIs. I've cited all of the relevant sources and papers that we've brought up in the show notes. If any of them are behind a paywall, I will try to find a free version. I'm sure somebody somewhere has one. Um, But you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Uh, Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neuroscienceamateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neuroscienceamateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. And if you're feeling so inclined to financially support my work, please buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash neuroscience. Um, If you have something you really, really want to learn about, please contact me, and you will probably see an episode about it soon. Uh... Ilya, thank you so much. You you have been a joy and a pleasure to talk to. Thank you. Awesome. Well, happy researching, and I hope to see you guys again. <laughs>